Uh, tonight we're going to go back in time a little bit. We're going to get in the King James Version time machine. Uh, and we're also going to get in the songs of the church time machine and, and, and go back and capture something that doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite compute maybe uh, with more modern um, versions. It's the word for affections. We'll get to that in a minute. But let me describe apathy again. What we've done in this series is, first of all, what is apathy? We talked about it. Apathy without feeling, without motivation. I want to want to, but for some reason I don't have that oomph to engage in spiritual things in my walk with God. I don't have that passion. Um, Our hearts, here's how one person put it, our hearts are alive to things that don't matter, but numb to the things that do. I want you to think about that. Our hearts are alive to things that simply don't matter and numb to the things that should matter most. Our affections have become disordered, as C.S. Lewis says, too easily pleased with lesser things. So here's the thing that we have to do. Step number one, we're talking about what, what is apathy, what causes apathy. Now we're moving to that third thing about what do I do about this? And here's the first suggestion, that is, Train your heart to love greater things. This is one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life. Romans 12 is where we start first in the King James Version. Romans 12 begins with that passage, you know, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those great two verses at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. And in verse 10, he says this, be kindly, this is a word we don't use, affectioned one to another with brotherly love. You know what that means to be affectioned to one another? I am making my heart be in tune with you. I'm gonna, in other words, he says, when you become a Christian and you give your life to him, you start living for him, you start making room in your heart for your fellow believers. You start being, so one of the worst things that happens to a Christian is they sustain an isolation posture. It's like, I'm gonna live my life just kind of my own and not worry about anybody else. You've gotta be, you gotta train yourself to be affection toward other people. And this is not a natural bent for most of us. So, so one of the things that you do when you change your mind, it's transformed, you start opening your heart as affection toward other believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a second occurrence of this. There's this man that we don't have the full story of it. He was engaging in sin, and the church had to discipline him for it to the point of disfellowship. He was hurt by that, responded properly, came back, and when he came back, the church opened its heart to him. And this is what 2 Corinthians 7.15 says, And his inward affection is more abundant toward you. His affection grew with this move. He realized how much he loved you and made room more, and you did the same thing for him. When you act in proper alignment with the truth and your posture towards somebody else, the affection grows. All right. You know the works of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Right after he gives those two lists, he says this, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts of it. You know what the affections are? It's that fallen nature, that sinful nature in you has 
a draw of the heart. You start setting your heart on things that are sinful, things that are wrong. And when you become a Christian, when you give your life to God and the Holy Spirit comes in, He starts saying, I want you to crucify those affections that are improper. I want you to identify those things in your heart that you need to get rid of. This is not an automatic thing. I wish it was. You have to take it and nail it to a cross. Because even after you get out of the waters of baptism, the things, things that grabbed your attention and drew your heart, they're still doing it. They'll still do it, but you've got to crucify. You've got to take charge, and you've got to tell your heart what to set its mind on. I know it's crazy, right? Finally, we have this passage in Colossians 3. This is, I haven't read King James a lot in a long time, and when I read it, I just don't get it. Okay, so sometimes. Here's, here's Colossians chapter 3, I think. Did I put that on there? Yeah. If you then, this is us, being risen with Christ... How many have been risen with Christ in the waters of baptism? This is you. If you then, being risen with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth. Yep, that's where Christ sitteth. The right hand of God. Set your affection on things above. You program your heart toward the things that are right. You start getting that wrench and you start adjusting it. It's right now set on things that are still earthly. You've got to set that affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. Next screen. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you will appear with him in glory too. Mortify, therefore. Does anybody know what mortify means? Do you know what mortician is? It's a funeral director, an embalmer, right? Put to death the things in your body which are earthy, fornication, uncleanness, in ordinate affection things that you're drawn to that you know you shouldn't be drawn to you've got to suffocate them young people this is the hardest thing i can tell you is i wish when you came up out of the waters of baptism suddenly all the desire for sin gets completely evaporated and floats around in the baptistry but that's going to still be there, and you have got to take action. You've got to put to death these things and set your heart on these things. So the Christian is the one who has this earnest, who begins this earnest process of changing what I put my heart's attention on. You actually have to change your dreams. You have to change your goals. You've got to change the things you enjoy spending time doing. Oh, I wish it was simple. I wish I could say to you that, 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 that the love for the things of the world goes away quickly. No, there's so many songs in the old songbook we would sing that talk about this. I, I no longer shop at the world store. I don't use like, what in the world does that mean? What it means is I'm no longer just looking at their selections and choosing from what they want me to choose from, right? It's not the American dream that sets me. It's Allegiance to my God. We should have to, we have to cooperate, reprogram our hearts upon these things. It's no less than putting something to death. The things that used to jive you, you put them to death and you retrain yourself to jive something else. Let me change analogies for a minute. My dad had open heart surgery and one of the things that's most disturbing to him, frustrating to him, is at least for a time, I hope it comes back, but he lo his, his taste buds have changed. Things that he used to like and taste good now don't taste good to him anymore. It's a weird thing. That's what conversion should be. All of a sudden, 
the things I had a palate and an interest in them, all of a sudden, my taste buds change. And as First Peter says, the things I used to do that I thought found so much enjoyment out of, all of a sudden I look at them and go, I don't like that. Good, that's what you're supposed to be training your heart toward different things. Man, is this a lifelong process. Okay, here's the old song from Songs, Songs of the Church. And this song should be in our song book, but I couldn't find it. You remember this one? Have thine affections been nailed to the cross? Is thy heart right with God? You remember this one? Dost thou count all things for Jesus but loss? Is thy heart right with God? And here comes the chorus. Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Have your old affections, the things you had your heart set on, as the greatest things of enjoyment, that changes with conversion. Paul puts himself in this challenge by saying to us, you've got to put off this stuff, and you've got to put on this stuff. And he makes it sound easy, like taking off an old muddy shirt that you've been working in all day, or sweaty shirt, and putting on a new one. It sounds easy, but it's not. And I wish this was automatic. I wish the things that compelled me that my heart shouldn't be set upon suddenly repelled me, and I was compelled toward the things that are better. But it reminds me, we had Dr. Casey here this afternoon, and I thought about this old mad TV sketch. Anybody remember Bob Newhart? Anybody remember Bob Newhart? He was a comedian. I loved him on the, Newhart, the show Newhart. I loved it. This is, I'm, 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 uh, I'm somebody, this is my brother Daryl, this is my other brother Daryl. Anybody remember him? Anyway, that's, this mad TV sketch. And he comes, he's a psychiatrist, and he comes out. And there's a lady in his office and wanting to unload some concerns of her. And, and he, he just comes out in his dry, uh, repetitive way. He says, no, 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 let, let me just tell you how I charge. I charge $5 for the first five minutes. And it's free after that. Well, he says, that sounds wonderful. He says, you won't even need five minutes. Wow, this guy's good. And so he comes out and she says, okay, now tell me what your thing is. So I, I don't like going into boxed areas. I feel, I feel, I feel like I'm, I, I, I make myself feel like I'm being buried alive. And he says, okay, let me solve that for you. Two words. And she says, oh, two words? Yeah, two words. Do I need to write it down? Well, you can, but it's real easy to remember. Okay, she says, so I, I, th that's what I do. I, I, I keep thinking about being buried alive. And he looks at her and he says, stop it! What? Quit! Don't do that! Stop it! Well, I just can't help it. I start thinking, quit! Stop it! And they say, well, and I'm having trouble with my husband too. And he does this, I do this. And he says, stop it! Stop it! And he just keeps saying it. Stop it! Your problem is, well, when I do this, it makes me hurt. Well, then don't do this! It's real easy. Stop it! Now, $5 and you can leave, right? And, that's, and what I love about this sketch is two things. One, it makes it sound so easy, right? I know the, the alcoholic knows he needs to quit drinking. You know, I mean, uh, our, 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 our challenge as a Christian, we know it's not a knowledge problem, is it? The whole Christian life is not a knowledge problem. Quit sinning, church. Well, you know that and I know that. The other thing I like about the sketch is that it really makes it simple when we make it too complicated sometimes. Quit doing that. 
It doesn't take a, a radical, miraculous act from God, but it does take some work for you. Apathy. Apathy is we've lost that passionate desire to be one with God and to walk with God and to nurture that walk with God with spiritual disciplines. We've lost the capacity to be affected by what we should be affected by. And the only proper response for the person of God, stop doing that and reclaim the ability to be moved by the gospel again. Stop engaging in things that are unworthy of your attention and draw distance between you and God. Quit doing that. Focus on the things that do get you closer. The story, Blake read, one little verse. It's right there on the screen, one verse. This guy's walking along. I don't know where he's at, but he's not on his own property. And he discovers this incredible treasure. And he looks at it. No one else knows it's there. I don't know how did he, I don't, those details aren't there, but he, he, he is so enamored and he's so, he, he's so captivated by how valuable it is. And the things that he valued before suddenly lose their enamor to him. Suddenly the things that he thought were so big in his own life, he doesn't mind liquidating. I'll go sell my house. I'll go sell my kids. No, not his kids. I'll go sell my wedding ring. I'll go sell everything. I'm going to liquidate everything to get this. Crazy thoughts. And his wife is back there going, what are you doing, honey? And the kids are going, what's wrong with dad? He's just been, he's just been completely radically converted by the fact that there's something valuable, more valuable than he's ever known before. And it's available to him. Here's how one preacher put, put it. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. When you discover something that's more compelling to you than anything before, and you'll take anything else in trade to get this. And that's what this man does. Gripped by the value of this treasure. And we know, according to the story, the treasure is the kingdom of God. Now, here's the question. Is this just for your getting in conversion baptism is this excitement that I'll trade anything in the world at all to have the treasure to get into the kingdom is is it just about our baptism is Jesus is God only rejoicing and celebrating the day we come and then the day after he gets back to normal and everything's just normal or is God still celebrating that you're his is the party over and here's the other thing. Uh, we're willing to do anything to get in the kingdom, and we'll have people come up, people from different backgrounds. They'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll say Jesus is Lord. I'll trade whatever in order to get saved, okay? Are you going to trade whatever to stay saved? Is it that exciting? Is it enough to trade in the treasures of your life all along the way? Or is this just a getting in thing? Is this a getting in thing? And then once I get in, I go back to my old music and I go back to my old movies and I go back to my old friends and I reclaim them? Or am I still, even 12, 15, 20, 30 years later, I'm still trading the treasures of this life for this wonderful kingdom? Or is, or is it grown old and now I'm letting that old stuff come back? Is this just for getting in? And then once I get in, I go back to the old treasure. There's another par parable, I think, that answers that. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? The father is so overwhelmed 
with a returning prodigal that he throws a party and the older son won't come in. And he says, how dare you throw a party for him? And the father said, everything that I've had, all this party stuff has been here all along for you. And you've missed it. You've made the Christian life drudgery. It was a party all along and you never saw it. Have we lost that treasure feeling about being kingdom people? We would do anything to come in front of a group of people and be baptized, but then 20 years later, here we are. Maybe it's not all that much to us. So how... I'm going to choose to interpret this as from that point forward, he was willing to continue trading anything this world had to offer. Anything the world had to offer, he would trade it to sustain this treasure of the kingdom of God. Now, how do, how do we train ourselves to do this? Because it just waxes on and off when it comes to the intensity for us. Or maybe I can ask it another way. How did you fall for your spouse? What caused you to fall for her, for him? Or if you're not married, what draws you toward certain people and not toward others? How do they have that impact on you? And you married people, are you still fallen? You know what I mean? I mean, you fell for her. Are you still down on the ground wallowing for her? I mean, you know what I mean? Are you still falling for her? Or now are you uh, totally upright and like... Okay, it's just we're just two roommates and friends and passing in the night. Well, are you still? How do you fall for somebody? It's, that's what I'm thinking. How, how do we fall in love with God again? That's the thing. How do we how do, we do that? So, so here's two or three options. Just some suggestions. The Scripture doesn't just come out and answer this. And I'm going to do it in reverse order and then show you the opposite. So first of all, you have a positive history. That's how you fell in love with somebody. There was a positive history. You hung around them. Back when I was studying courting, yeah, that's what they told it in Fried Hardeman back in 1990. Here's how people courted for years. What are, the, what are the elements that get you to fall in love with somebody? And the number one one, the number one one, the number one element was proximity, which is no longer valid. You don't need to be physically near somebody. I know that because half the people leave their marriage for somebody they hook up with on Facebook, right? They never even near them at all, right? But proximity means you have to be around them. I love Phil Rampey talking about, he's, he, Phil Rampey is a California surfer. Do you know that? He is a surfer guy. Can you see him doing that? He's not here, so we can just imagine it. Just imagine it in your mind. That just is not in my category of thinking. But he's a California surfer guy. How did he meet his beautiful wife from Jonesboro, Arkansas. How, well, they were at the University of Mississippi, Mississippi, University of Memphis, and they were in the same housing complex, and they were thrown into there, and that proximity made him notice her. I don't know why she noticed him, but I know why he noticed her. And they got to knowing each other, and they shared a common faith, and all of a sudden that proximity led for them to have a positive history, and they fell in love with each other until the day she died. The moral of it is, when it comes to, if you want to fall in love with God, you've got to stay in close contact with him. Refuse to let a distance grow up between you and him. 
this thing where we spend time together and commune together and we fellowship together, you and God, and you find it so positive and so uplifting, and there's a history of it. Now, you, you might say, well, since I don't have a history of it, I, this can't work for me. No, you create a history. For, but many of you can know that you can go back years and years and years, and you've had a relationship with God for a long, long time, and he is like a very precious old friend. More than that, but at least that. And you can't imagine handling life without him. But for others who are younger and you say, well, how do we well, get, a, get a history? Start intentionally creating a history with God of positive things where you spend time with him. You enjoy things with him. This right here is why the church does what it does. The church needs to create an emotional glue for our kids from when they're way little. I want them to remember sitting on Santa's lap in our fellowship building, not just in some mall. I want it to be here. I want them to come up the hill. And yeah, I know we're giving out candy on Halloween, and nobody ever gets converted from it, but our kids are getting a glue connection to a spiritual place and experience. They're associating with a people of God, and when they turn 18, they won't be able to break loose. Every little thing, and I know we can say, well, why are we doing this and why are we doing this? The reason we're doing this is to have sticky faith in a different kind of way than the book says. When you have history, and it's positive, and it's affirming, your heart will follow. I, can't, I will not tell you I couldn't fall away from God. I can't tell you that because I know it's, like Jeff was saying in class this morning, it's possible. I can't conceive of it. I can't see, conceive of anything breaking the bond that he has established with me. Cannot conceive. Secondly is make a good positive habit of it. Now this sounds almost like the same thing. But let me, how many of you are like the people who say, don't talk to me before I've had my coffee in the morning? How many are like this? Some of you, I know it. I've seen Michael in the morning, you know, up here at the office before. Others, somehow or another, you started drinking coffee and you liked it. And you started drinking it in the morning and you noticed that you enjoyed that time with that coffee and then an hour later life came to you and your eyes opened and suddenly you were alive again and, and you associate. And it's a habit you've created. This Monday morning, this, this morning thing, this, this morning coffee thing is not a physical thing. You weren't born with it. There was a day that you didn't do that because most of you remember that it, when you were growing up coffee was for adults. You may remember this, coffee's for, it's not even true anymore, but coffee was for adults. At some point in time, you started this. It wasn't always like that. You weren't born with Starbucks coffee in your hands. I, you may think so, but you weren't. And so, or Shadrach's room. You, 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 for some reason, you associated that with good things, and you created a habit of doing this. There's this thing for, especially for pregnant women, this is a weird thing, called pica, where your body needs certain things like iron, and it will make you want to eat things that have that in it even though you're not conscious of it at all paint chips weird things that you crave because your body has this need for it and it knows where it's at and people eat dirt when they have pike it's just this craving and this and then all of a sudden you have this habit you create a habit and and it becomes this weird thing right we know something we know righteousness is good for us right 
We know doing the right thing of God is good for us. We know fellowship is important. And even if you're not a person who likes fellowship or who needs all that much fellowship, you know it's right for you. You know that. So you intentionally make this positive habit in your life. You make it a priority and you put it in there and you make yourself do it. When we were growing up, Noah didn't particularly like youth events. He loved having gone to them, but he didn't want to go to them. And we would have to make him go to them. And then he would thank us and he would say, it was really fun. I'm glad I did. It's just I didn't want to leave my video games and go. But we made him do this because we knew he had to. And that's what we do. We, we look at these habits. Church is one of these. It's not just a habit. Don't listen to me wrong. It's not just a habit. But it is a habit. It's Sunday morning. It's time to get up and go. And sometimes you may not feel like it, but because it's a habit, you're going to go ahead and do it anyway, and you'll be glad you went. This is what you've put into your life. That's why the Hebrew writer says, don't forsake the assembling, right? You need, this is good. So go ahead and choose to make it a habit. Because most often when people, when people grow distant from things they love, it doesn't happen by an explosion It happens by erosion. Does that make sense? It's not like you suddenly quit going to church. It's that you slowly insert a few absences in there, here and there, and suddenly your heart goes, or COVID puts it in there. Make a good positive habit, and then third, set your heart on it. Um, Anybody have a bucket list of things they want to do before they die? I often wonder, I don't really want to know what people's bucket list items, but I do want to know how they came to put those things in it. How did you ever know Disney was the most wonderful place on earth? Where did you come up with that idea to put it in your bucket? Why do people do that? Why do people want to go on a cruise to Alaska? That's one of mine. And you ask me why, and I'm like, I've read about it, and I've heard some people come back from one of those cruises where they saw the ice break off, and I think that is so cool, and they see the whales, and, and all of a sudden, the more I read about it and the more I hear about it from other people, it, uh, that gets in my imagination, and I want to go, and so it goes in my bucket list. How do you decide what goes in there? You start hearing about these amazing adventures. You start reading about them. You, you hear other people on Facebook talk about them, post their pictures. You're like, that's something i got to see. It's going to go on my bucket list. How do we set our hearts and feed our minds to where we want the things of God? When he says, put to death the affections of the heart in Galatians 5, What do you replace them with? You replace them with things of the gospel. And I think about this. And when you think about what the gospel really is as we gather around the table, it shouldn't be hard for us to set our hearts upon what God, upon the things of God, drawn close to Him, given what He has done for us, and and that's what you remember. And so we would uh, we take pictures, and on the pictures on the wall, we have these things that we've done. I've got family members. I keep their pictures on the wall. You do too. I've been to your houses. You might have a a significant significant thing from a a vacation. 
whatever and, and you want to remember those things and you got those souvenirs and you remember that time and when you look at that stretched penny or whatever you do for your vacation souvenir you see that thing and you remember everything about that trip and it brings to mind vividly all those things and those people become even more precious to you right there was one trip we went to Washington DC and so many weird significant things happened that for Christmas I I described it for an artist who who drew it out for me and I gave him his gifts my mother-in-law my mother-in-law was terrified about being left in the subway in Washington, D.C. She's one of these that just, uh, she's got to have somebody with her all the time. If, if, and she's got a, no sense of direction. And so when you would be riding the public transportation, the subways, the door could close and you're gone. They're all gone and you're left alone. You're like, what are you supposed to do? She was not going to let this happen. It happened once and she swore it would never happen again. So we were about to get on the subway and most of us were on it. That ding goes off that gives you just a few seconds, and she was not going to be left behind. She gets a running jump, and she takes off with all her might, and she slams into a wall of people, and they fall like dominoes on the other side because she was not going to be left behind on the subway. It was one of the greatest scenes in history. I see chariots of fire every time I see it. I hear the song. And so I've, I had it drawn out, and this guy did this caricature. It was so great, and I presented it to her for Christmas. And it's one of those things we talk about all the time. This is the stuff. This, this, you set your hearts upon things that you remember and you isolate in your brain. And remembering what God has done for us. And every Sunday, God says, just like I said, this is for husbands and wives, but it's for all of us. We gather around the table and we remember the gospel. And if ever you were setting your heart on things that are way less noble than they should be, when you gather around that table and you remember, that's when you reorder things again, isn't it? That's when you reorder things again and you set your heart on honoring that man who died for us. And you say, whatever else is getting in the way of that and putting distance between me and him and his father, I've got to reorder life. And we do that every Lord's Day around this table. So I want you to look at these three things. I think I've got another screen. Here's the three steps to reordering the affections of the heart. Learn the truth of the gospel. Let it sink in and meditate on what God's done for you. And, and don't just make it a Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. Think about how God set this up from Genesis on. This amazing drama that he lays out, and it's all for us. And then practice it until it's a habit. You start practicing your response to that gospel until it's a habit in your life, and then you reflect on how positive that is in your life, and you got layers and layers and layers and years and years and years of positive history. I want, this is how I dream it, and I know that just dreaming it doesn't make it true. I'd like to think that our kids grow up here, and we do those amazing VBSs, I know you all who set up for that and you tear it down every year and you put up the chairs for all these events and we stay and we hang out and we eat fish on potluck days. And I know week in and week out that can get tiring, but the more layers, the more layers we can put in there of experience with God's people and association with a gospel response, 
I want that to be so thick that when our kids graduate, they can't pull away. Their hearts are set. But it's not just about our kids anymore, if it ever was just about our kids. I want to make it to where you can't turn your back on the God who's done so much for you because there's so much glue keeping you stuck. Let's reprogram our hearts. And sometimes we get a little out of whack and sometimes we start feeling ourselves being distant because we're putting a little, allowing too many little things in there that don't deserve to be there. When the Lord's Supper table comes around again, examine that life carefully. That's what we're told. Examine that life and make sure your heart is set upon the right things. And let's get busy setting our hearts and our affections on our Creator. Just one example of this, and we're going to quit. I've already gone too long. But I want you to look in the psalm book to a song we sing. Number 350. And it's two stories before it's a summary at the end. Two stories and two verses each. And I think this is describing what I'm talking about when we let things get in the way of our life. When my love to Christ grows weak, I'm getting distant. I'm getting a, a little bit weak in my devotion to him. When for deeper faith, I'm, I'm looking for deeper faith because I'm, I'm letting loose here a little bit. Then in thought, I go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I remember Garden of Gethsemane. And there I walk, verse 2, amid the shades, while the lingering twilight fades. See that suffering, friendless one, weeping, praying there alone. He's there for you. When my faith, when my love to Christ goes weak, I go to the garden, I stare at Jesus, and I marvel at what he's doing for me, and suddenly the faith comes back. Now what happens, verse 3, when my love for my fellow man grows weak, especially my fellow believer, when suddenly I just don't even give a flip about my brother, right? When he's, what happens when my love for man, when for stronger faith I seek, hill of Calvary, that's where I go, to the scene of fear and woe. I go back to the cross, and, and there behold is agony. I'm looking at that man on the tree, suffered on the bitter tree. See his anguish, see his, his faith, love triumphant still in death. You see what he did for us? What he did for us, he also did for my brother and for my fellow man. And I can't, I can't leave there. I can't, I gotta go back in time. I gotta look at this. I gotta remember what he did. And I've got to, and then I respond. How do I respond? Verse five. So then I turn back to life. I get back to my life again and I remember the worth of pain, learning the might that lies in a full self-sacrifice. When I look at what Jesus did, I get back at it. And that's what we do at the communion, isn't it? That's what we do at the Lord's table. We go back, we remember, and we find ourselves strengthened and the resolve returned. You have to do something, do something to set your heart again on the things that are noble and worthwhile of thinking. Things of the gospel. If there's any response you need to make this, this evening, this is a great time to make it together as we as a group of people who've done this want to urge you, make your life right with God. Let, have your affections been nailed to the cross. Now's a great time to do it as we stand and as we sing.